where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And as a, a human people, when we see that after the order of Melchizedek, uh, we have a certain way of viewing things. And I admit that we as a uh, chronologically thinking people often would take this passage out of its intended use and context. And we understand that that is really how we see things sometimes. Chronologically, we would say that here is Melchizedek, and the text seems to present itself as there is a Christ to come after. And indeed, that is partially true, but that is not the full spiritual nature by which Melchizedek is presented before us this morning in the text. Uh, we are to conclude uh, not that the text is telling us how Christ is like this king of Salem, but I would say we are to conclude how this king of Salem is much like the Christ. Indeed, although it says after the order of Melchizedek, we understand that there is no priest apart from Christ, first and foremost. And we'll see that as we understand, uh, according to this uh, inference from the genealogy of Melchizedek, that Christ is and was and is to come, eternally existing. Therefore, Melchizedek, in some form or fashion, must come and must have come after the Christ, and he must foretell of the Christ. Uh, I, I believe that there is also the tendency for many people to uh, think that Melchizedek is a Christophany, that he is the Christ, and I, I would say that that would be... Uh, for most, uh, a sort of a stretch of the text uh, because we will see how Christ fulfills uh, all of those things that no mere man can. And for this uh, understanding and for this placement of Melchizedek from the area in which he comes, we see that there are some genealogical differences. And we know that the Christ uh, comes from the line of David, right? We, we understand these things. That's why genealogy is so important. Yet here in this text, we see that there is less inference on the importance of Melchizedek's line. And instead, what we should see is more inference on the importance of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. Uh, we wouldn't be completely wrong in taking these other uh, viewpoints, but we would be somewhat limited and it is my prayer today that we would consider these things and see Christ in not a new light, but a brighter light. Uh, the original audience, as we always like to look at, would have been those who had received the epistle. and They had a certain cultural understanding, right? They're, this is the epistle to the Hebrews. These were Jewish people, uh, God's people, if you will. They were um, the people whom had always had the favor of the Lord, and they had often recognized that they were, in fact, the people of God, and that some of them thought that they were truly born uh, to be the only people for God. And we see that the text throughout Scripture declares something different, something that uh, we would akin to baptism, being born again, is what must happen for those who are truly the people of God. Culturally, these people would have been familiar with the accounts that we talk about when we talk about Melchizedek, those from Genesis, uh, those referenced in Psalms. When we hear the name Melchizedek, they would be familiar with the story of Abraham, or at the time when they occurred, Abram, 
And I, I think there is even a beautiful picture in that this morning as we see the names of Melchizedek and then we hear the name Jesus Christ. We consider the change of name for Abram to Abraham and how now when we talk about it, we don't say Abram met Melchizedek, but we, we call him Abraham. That is the name by which he was last known. And we understand that there is some importance for names. Such shall be Melchizedek and so shall be Jesus the Christ. And this time, uh, the priest that Abraham met would have been a man. Uh, even to the day the, that the epistle was written into the Hebrews, this Melchizedek, he would have been a man who was highly regarded, much as Moses and Abraham himself. But the text should never cast the greatest of light on he who is but a foreshadow of the Messiah. The intent is to show how this Melchizedek has served as a partial or maybe even an, an incomplete, if you will, picture of the Christ who saves. And we will certainly see that uh, shall we have the Lord's discernment this morning. We're first introduced to Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. Let's turn there. Not an extremely long passage. In the days, <coughs> excuse me, in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Shedalamar, king of Elam, and Tiddle, king of Goim, these kings were made war with Bera, the king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shimabir, king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Shedalamar, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled, in the fourteenth year, and the kings who were with him came and defeated Rephim and Ashtaroth, the Zuzim and Ham and Emim and Shavi, Kirathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Misfat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hezazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim, and Shedalamer, king of Elam, Tadal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arak, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of Bethum pits, and as the king of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possession of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their provisions, and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre, an Amorite brother of Eskol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in the house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night and his servants and defeated them and pursued them 
to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen, the lot of his possessions. And the women and the people, after his return from the defeat, Shedaleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shevan, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth that I would not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and share of the men who went with me. Let Anair, Esco, and Mamre take their share. Here we see the very first account of the man whom the text speaks very much of this morning. That is Melchizedek. What we learn is uh, a lot that is to be shared through chapter 7 of Hebrews of how this Melchizedek speaks more so of himself, uh, not of himself, but of a man whom we call Jesus, a man who is also divine, who is the Christ. We're introduced here in Genesis 14 to Melchizedek, and what we learn uh, from Hebrews chapter 1 is that he is the king of Salem. He is the king of Salem. But most importantly, when we look back at Genesis chapter 14, we first see, even before his kingship to Salem, we see that he is, by name, king of righteousness. The reason that Melchizedek is not speaking of himself, but foreshadowing is because the Bible declares that there is not any righteous, but the Most High who has come in the flesh, and this is Jesus the Christ. And if he is known here, this Melchizedek, as king of righteousness, his righteousness cannot be based upon flesh, but it must be based upon spirit. It must be based upon divine nature. So what we instantly see by simply the name Melchizedek, should we uh, look at this combination of two words, king of and righteousness, we shall see that there is something that other people do not have that this man has. One, that he has righteousness, most assuredly, but that he is premier over it. He is king, he is ruler over it, he is uh, enthroned in it, he is abounding over this righteousness. It belongs to him, and it uh, is only his and none else. The king is in control, and here with such a name, we must be looking to one who does have righteousness. And this is not simply a man named Melchizedek, but this is Jesus the Christ. We are being pointed here uh, as we see that there is a, a traveling of these men to gather back the kinsman Lot and his wife and his possessions 
and there is a moving over the wilderness from one land to another. And we're reminded as Melchizedek comes upon the scene that there is another voice that we have seen cry for the wilderness. And this is John the Baptist, and he was declaring something as well, not himself, but Jesus the Christ. There was a man whom John would baptize. Likewise, there is a man whom Melchizedek is declaring with the name that he bears, with the city whom he holds kingship over, and with the fruits and the offerings that he brings forth in blessing to Abraham. King of righteousness, king of Salem. Now, there is much debate about uh, where this Salem lies, uh, what city it would now be called. Many believing that this is now the place of Jerusalem. There have been many who have uh, stated a position on the city, where it was and who it was, uh, the people that being. And there have been even as well many recant and change their position. Uh, and I, I think that that would be okay to study that and, and hopefully maybe find out what you believe of this city. But what we must understand is that the importance is in the name. How important is a name? Well, it's very important. We understand that uh, from the Hebrew mind there were men given a name and it is taught and even to this day uh, by some Orthodox Jews that the name means everything. The main uh, the the main point of the name is that it describes the character of a man. And we'll see that. We'll see that God, of course, like I said, changes the name of Abram to Abraham. We see that Melchizedek is uh, literally this king of righteousness. And we see other names throughout the Bible that signify the man. And we have to ask ourselves, how can it be that a, a name describes the character of a man if a man is but a boy when he receives a name. It's interesting that uh, such thoughts would enter into our minds because we should quickly think to God who gives the name. It is God who gives the fruit of the womb, who brings forth life. And I declare to you this morning that even in such a name as Melchizedek, that God has given the name even to Jesus before he is born. You shall call his name Jesus. There is a lot to be said about a name. And that is what we notice in this king of Salem because it even means that he is not only king of peace, but he is at the same time king over the city of peace. Interesting. Now we have two aforementioned things that man in the flesh, that man apart from Christ has not. Righteousness and peace. Yet here is a man who is coming to Abram after defeating these kings, after uh, recapturing that what has belonged to him and his lineage. And this man is coming forth and he is king of righteousness and king of peace. All of those things that we should, as Christians, desire, righteousness and peace. Here it is amongst the battle, if you will, that Abram has gone to battle gone to battle for those things that essentially God has promised. Didn't he promise that he would be the father to many? And yet Abram is still fighting. You see, I, I believe that in the picture of all of this, there is still that illustration of man's responsibility and God's sovereignty with the name, with the cities, with the kings, 
with the plunder, with the promise, we'll start to see those things uh, as we quickly and deeply look into the name itself and what they represent, righteousness, peace. And then we see something else, that he is a priest of the Most High God. Now, what we know from Hebrews as we look at chapter 4 and chapter 5 and we're considering this great high priest Christ, we see that the priesthood has always been a, an appointment of God, right? This man didn't seek to be a priest. And, and what we absolutely must gather from this priesthood of Melchizedek is it was not that of the Levites, that it was not something that he was born into, that it was not something that he automatically gets. But rather, here is a more divine appointment. Here is an appointment apart from blood. He could never be born into that tribe because he simply was not of these men. But what he can be is appointed by God just as Jesus the Christ is appointed, as Hebrews declares. Here is the king of righteousness, the king of peace, and what we are quickly seeing is that he is priest of the Most High God. W what does that tell us? Well, this is uh, occurring sometime before we have ever made it to the, the next books of the Bible where we see this priesthood uh, set up. And what we understand is that there are those truths from John being brought forth that this is not a priesthood of the blood or of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but this is a priesthood divinely of God. And he is called a priest forever. He's meeting Abraham. Now, the text in Genesis uh, makes us think, with, if we took it apart from Hebrews, that uh, Abram went to this area, and we may inappropriately uh, think that there is an insinuation that he went to meet this Melchizedek, but that is not the truth. Uh, as we read in chapter 7, verse 1, that he met Abraham returning from the slaughter. Now we're considering the priesthood in a different light. Here is a priest that Abram hasn't just stumbled over, but here is a priest who has been most certainly sent by God to meet the man whom he shall serve as priest for. Now, he is already serving in those areas, but here is the man who is going to bring this bread and the wine, and he is going to meet. And we have to consider the priesthood again. We consider the Levitical priesthood. We know that there were times commanded by which men would go to the priest. Uh, and even today, unfortunately, those who are falsely called priests, men go before them, confess, bring their offerings, and the priests must bring them before God. And that was what it would happen uh, in the Old Testament times. But here now we see a priest like Christ. Not Christ like this priest, but a priest like Christ in that he would come. And he is bringing the blessing, and he is bringing reconciliation. And, and for that reason, I wanted to read this to you this morning uh, from a, a hymn that we sing. We consider it a Christmas song, and I thought, no more does this uh, speak of Melchizedek than it speaks of Jesus the Christ. Hark the herald angels sing. The verse says, glory to the newborn king. And we consider this morning this man named Melchizedek who is king of righteousness, king of Salem, king of peace. And the text says, the, uh, the text in the hymn says this, peace on earth 
and mercy mild, God and sinners reconcile. And we have, as Melchizedek makes his way onto this biblical scene, is a representation of God and sinners reconciled. Nothing more does the priesthood do than reconcile man to God. And that is only possible through one who is righteous. That is only possible through one who knows peace and whom with him is king over it and who must declare it. One who has seen victory. In fact, when we consider Melchizedek as as the king of righteousness, has he uh, defeated somewhat sin? Certainly because he is righteous, but more importantly, he has victory and peace over that which he is king. The very thing that Abraham did not yet have. Of course, he too must be looking to the Christ, and he too must be saved by the Christ, for no man may enter into the heavenly kingdom except by knowing the Father and the Son and having been redeemed by him. But it says he was returning from the slaughter. What a beautiful picture! What a beautiful picture! that Abraham has returned from the slaughter and he is living, he is living in the flesh, yet some have been sacrificed and here is a priest. There has been a slaughter and here is a priest. And it was a slaughter of kings, highly uh, praised men among men, highly esteemed men, and yet in that there is a proclamation of victory in meeting with Melchizedek by which he blesses Abraham. Begin to think of the judgment of Christ by which uh, we are saddened to think of this side of heaven that we should have a sense of urgency by which we evangelize and by which we proclaim the name Jesus Christ and by which we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and it's because we are worried We are like Paul. We should be concerned with the souls that may go to hell. Who should they not hear of Christ? But the flip side of that is that as the saints will reign in heaven, they will most certainly stand up for the judgment of God. They will certainly uh, be with him in judgment. We see even pictures of that as the church conducts uh, God's business on earth as the church goes through with those things which they are commanded to do as that assembly, we see the judgment of God that is not always beautiful, but we know it is right. And it should to us be beautiful. It should be pleasant, not because of the circumstances by which they occur, but because of the God who has declared them right and appropriate. Here we have Abram returning from this slaughter of kings, and it says that he has met... Uh, by Melchizedek and blessed him, it says. And blessed him. He has the ability to bless him. Now, how does that happen? Well, the truth is, uh, without Christ, no man may bless you. He may think he can, but no man can bless you. In fact, uh, that is why when we receive something from someone, especially if they're Christians and we are two Christians, And uh, I'm reminded of this even by the words of one sitting here today that to God be the glory for these blessings. In fact, Melchizedek in and of itself cannot take glory for these blessings for everything belongs to God. Everything is His. 
We see that he is met after this slaughter and he is blessed. Our thoughts should be cast upon the lamb who was slain. In which after the slaying of this lamb and after his burial and his resurrection. That the greatest blessing unto man has been received. The eternal life. The peace. The righteousness. These things that the very name of Melchizedek represent. See that he blessed them. And then to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name king of righteousness. King of Salem. King of peace. We see that he is blessed. And then he is giving the tenth. Also know what Melchizedek is known for bringing. When we read the uh, small accounts, the short accounts of Melchizedek, he is attributed to bringing bread and wine. What an appropriate thing. In fact, it's uh, so often misunderstood and, and little emphasis placed upon it that we even have professing Christians to declare that wine is sinful. When the Bible in many places declares that it is a blessing. And in this uh, consideration of Melchizedek, he is known for bringing bread and wine as a blessing. That is the Genesis account, bringing bread and wine. What an interesting choice. Consider those who would later travel through the wilderness, wandering, and what did they want? They wanted always something else to eat. And manna became not enough. And meat was not enough. Here is a man who is king, who is priest. He must certainly must have had everything under the sun, and he brings bread and wine. He brings bread and wine. Two things that, as we observe them appropriately this morning, we know must represent the body of the Savior and the blood by which he has spilt. To do what? To bring to man redemption. To bring to man righteousness. To bring to man peace. That peace on earth, mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. Know that he brings bread. Why? Because in the literal sense, man may not live by bread alone, but what we know in the spiritual sense is that it is that which represents Christ's body, that which was the only thing that we must live by. And the blood, the cleansing blood of Christ, the value being infinite, that being the price that is paid to reconcile sinners. And here before the incarnation of Christ, is that remembrance of Christ for Abram. Here is that remembrance of the Savior to come. Why? Because He is eternal. Is and was and is to come. The decoration of bread and wine. Why was it at the wedding feast? In the temporal sense, Jesus was not concerned with the wine. In the spiritual sense, Jesus Christ is that wine. He is the blessing. 
He is the blood. And so here it is, even to Abraham before the incarnation of Christ, the proof of the Savior, the foreshadowing of the Savior, the picture, the illustration that Jesus, the Christ, will come as body broken, as true drink, as true living water, the fruit of the true vine, this Jesus Christ. And it will serve as a reminder that there is a sacrifice given by a priest, a sacrifice that is a priest, and a sacrifice that is sufficient as final and reigning prophet, priest, and king on behalf of man that knowing him and having for us this final sacrifice that it is finished. Man truly reconciled to God. Reminded again is without father or mother or genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life but resembling the Son of God. Now here it is, the thing that we miss so often when we read this, resembling the Son of God. He continues as a priest forever. He is resembling the Son of God, before the Son of God is born in flesh. There is proof in Hebrews that at the time I would, uh, I would declare that no one saw in Genesis this Melchizedek being this resemblance of the Son of God. We also go back and look and we're told that Abraham apportions a tenth part. This is interesting because it deals with tithing. And what we see uh, is a model that the tithe is not even commanded. Nowhere do we see that here. We see that this man is meeting Abraham and Abram being known as Abraham for the rest of his life is moved to tithe this one-tenth. Nowhere commanded nowhere demanded what does it speak of well if this one who is named Melchizedek is resembling the son of God and Abraham has come back essentially from war as it has been declared and he still has his life and now he is being blessed he feels that it is indeed necessary to give to this man who is representing Jesus the Christ in that we have uh, essentially a model for the offering that we give at church or what you may even call the tithe. We have uh, no command here to give a certain percentage, but what we understand is he gave that which was fit for the priest. In fact, nothing that we give is ever truly fitting for the priest, the one who is reconciling man to God but what we do know is that Abraham offers it and we see in that a, a Christian model of service to Jesus Christ that whatever we are blessed with shall it be the time in our lives that we are extended that we wake up tomorrow there should be uh, a portion and indeed all of it given to Christ if it be financial there should be a portion and yet all of it given to Christ if there be houses and land whatever it may be it shall be given to Christ. If it was given to Melchizedek from Abram, 
short of ever visually seeing the Christ, and even in one sense hearing about his birth in Bethlehem as the hymn talks about this morning, yet he still gives, what should the Christian be doing this morning? Considering that Jesus, the Christ, is this priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus Christ is greater, higher. The, the song we sing says, I will come to thee. Now we know of this priest after the order of Melchizedek. He has come to meet us and bless us. And now we are called to walk with him. Now we are called to give to him. And we see again a model of salvation even as we consider Abram and this priest Melchizedek. He is being sought out to be blessed with the purpose of blessing. Has he been sought out? Why was he good? Absolutely not. There is none good, no, not one. Yet the Lord has chosen according to his goodwill before man ever existed to save those elect to predestine us into eternal life and because of that, we see now how the great high priest, Jesus the Christ, has gone from that flock, even to seek after, yes, the one and leaving the 99. And we understand that this good shepherd is reaching out with blessings and with everlasting, ever-present, ever-strong arms of eternal light, grasping without a grip that can be loosed those who belong to him, bringing, of course, salvation. In one sense, as we understand it, even in this model, the blessing was given before the priest was ever seen. What a spiritual truth it is for even the unregenerate, yet they know not that the blessing has been present even though the Christ has yet to be seen. Isn't that certainly true? Consider what all, even the wicked have. Consider what we as Christians have. Now a surety of hope, an anchor that is in heaven, that has truly gone through, passed through the veil, who has himself ripped it down and made it uh, a possibility and a reality for Christians to enter to the celestial kingdom as we have it. We sing about it. The text declares that he must be greater, this Jesus, the Christ. And Melchizedek must be greater than any other priest that we hear of aside from Christ because he is forever. You take it simply, well, he's better because he lasts longer. And truly, I've said it many times that the value of things uh, is certainly tied to how long they last. Right? Consider a bicycle. You can buy a, one at Walmart made in China or Taiwan. 50, 100 bucks. Then you have those made elsewhere, maybe Italy, America, costing thousands. They last longer. They're just simply more valuable. Here we have a priest who should be considered in the same but may be greater light because he is lasting forever. And the emphasis seems to be on the forever, but what we forget is that 
forever details for us the truth of Christ's priesthood. It declares to us the divinity of this priest. That he is not like man that he was born into it, that he so happened to be a Levite. But this is Jesus the Christ who's appointed by God forever as the Son of God, the only, the only sufficient sacrifice for man, and he shall be forever because he is God. What this tells us is that he is righteousness. Priesthood forever is guaranteed eternal righteousness. And whatever he blesses with, because he has an infinite stash, if you will, of it. There is a Jesus being described here who cannot uh, be as many of the cults would describe him as simply a priest, simply a teacher, simply a good man, but this is a Jesus who is divine, Jesus who is righteous, Jesus who is just, Jesus who is loving, Jesus who is kind, who is patient, long-suffering, all of the, the things that you think, the attributes, the holiness of God determined in this one man, Jesus the Christ. What is also interesting is that this Melchizedek, unlike any other priest, of course, save Christ, who is holding two offices, priest and king. The very idea that God's people, even uh, those professing to be God's people to this day, Jewish orthodoxy, they did not understand, they cannot understand lest they be saved. They desired a king. We saw it. See it with Samuel, anointing kings. The people didn't need a king, but they wanted a king. And here is the model of Christ that says, you don't need a king and you don't need a president. You have a priest who is holy, and therefore he is fit to be king. This is the picture that Melchizedek represents, the things that man has uh, later, as we see throughout the Old Testament, has moved away from, has forgotten, has veered from his prescribed course to need a priest and need a king. And God says, you have them both in Jesus Christ. Consider this, as long as you have a priest and a mediator, you have a king. You have everything you need if you have but a priest and a mediator. That is the de declaration not of man but of God. A less righteous man than Christ could really be neither. For without righteousness, peace, he can be neither a priest nor a mediator. There is no indication, of course, because we see that he has no genealogy here, that he came from a line of priests because he did not. No blood, no will, man nor flesh can make this man priest again God has declared to us in the book of John that neither of these things can make us Christian only if we are blessed by the greatest highest priest in order that we understand what Melchizedek represents 
we must see the who of Jesus Christ. None came before him. None came after him. That is the declaration of his genealogy. Fulfilled only by Jesus the Christ. Being himself God. Not grasping for equality. None before, none after. Does he know not one? He's also like Christ. And that there is much of a mystery concerning this Melchizedek. We may only begin to see them should we first be given knowledge and discernment of God in the person of Christ. We may never know or understand this Melchizedek. And Abram most certainly could not have understand the blessing unless he knew that it was from God. Today we must be uh, determined in our minds and must be sure that Jesus Christ is from God, that Jesus Christ is God, that he alone holds within his hand the power and the authority to bless, as Hebrews chapter 1 declares, that he is King of kings and Lord of lords, that he is greatest, highest, that he is without nothing good, and that he is totally absent from evil. Everything that he does according to the will of God, that he is perfect in righteousness and holiness in every other way that we as men are called to be but cannot because of sin. should also serve to the Jews as a sign that there will be a better priest than what you have. Unfortunately, to this day, there are some that do not understand that. Holding on to the physical priesthood that most certainly with the end of the world will die out. The truth is that the gospel of Jesus Christ declares that we as men must hold on to a priesthood that is eternal and that is, is reigning and is seated in heaven and is able to mediate between God and man and who has certainly done that, this is a better priest. This is simply a better priest. Unfortunately, it is idolatry, and it's selfish, even, yes, for us and the Jews uh, of today to declare that what we have is the best. If what we have is not Christ, then we do not have the best. Truly, Chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, declare for us a revelation of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the priest, the greatest of which we shall ever see. In order that we understand what he does, we must come to him, all who are weary, heavy laden. We must cast our cares at the feet of the king. Indeed, that is what we see throughout every kingship in the Bible. That the subjects, if you will, must come before the king. What we'll find is like with Esther, our king will extend the staff, the rod, those things which David said comfort him, those who believe and those who trust, those who 
know he is who he says he is, those who acknowledge both his priesthood and his kingship, as well as his lordship. He is faithful, he is able to save, and he has indeed done that. Jesus Christ is not a possibility for salvation, but he is a reality for salvation. We must believe in him, call upon his name, and trust that he is God in the flesh, that God has given his only son, and that in doing that there is righteousness for man, and there is now peace for man, and there is a king greater than any king, and there is a Lord greater than any Lord, a Lord of lords, as he is called. Today the call through the man Melchizedek in the text of Hebrews chapter 7 is to the Most High God in the person of Jesus Christ, that we would bend the knee, that we would bow the heart and confess with tongue, knowing that he alone is able to save. Let's pray. Father God, as we come before you, Lord, we just thank you that there are so many pictures and illustrations of our Savior. God, that even before we were born, there were testimonies uh, being given and created by you and willed by you, O oh God. That declare that salvation is a reality. That righteousness is something that uh, we must desire and that we may have through the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that you would enable us to exalt him to glorify him, to magnify him, your name, God. To declare the mysteries of heaven as given in the text. That we may be seen as faithful servants. Lord, that we would be reminded that if Christ is a priest, if he is a mediator as he is, then there is much on behalf of men to be said. There are many sins to declare and many praises to sing. Lord, we ask that you would bless our time moving forward. Lord, as we will soon partake of the meal, but most importantly, Lord, as we observe uh, communion, that which you have instituted, that is to serve as a remembrance of Jesus Christ, the Savior. Lord, to remember that this is uh, not simply cup or a fruit that is grown in the backyard God but this is this is a cup that would have been reserved with bitter wrath that we so deserve but instead God that there would be the fruit of a true vine Jesus Christ there would be blood of a perfect lamb we're not so much caught in a bush like what we would see with Abraham and Isaac, but one who is crowned with thorns, who has gone according to your will, God, that men may be saved. And Lord, let us recognize that uh, his blood does great atonement. Lord, that it does cover a multitude of sins and that it was spilt not simply for our sinful neighbor, God, but for our iniquitous self. Lord, may we value that which we partake of this morning 
with an eternal perspective of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray.